It's likely that you heard the story of the little boy who was frightened by the storm, but I'm going to tell it again anyway. When the lightning flashed and the thunder crashed, the little boy ran to his parents' room. And his parents comforted him by telling him, it's okay, Jesus is with you. And they sent the little boy back to his room. Once again, the lightning flashed and the thunder crashed. The little boy ran to his parents' room and they comforted him with these words, it's okay, Jesus is with you. And they sent him back to his room. For a third time, the lightning flashed and the thunder crashed and the little boy ran to his parents' room. And he said, I know, I know, Jesus is with me. But right now I need someone with skin on. We laugh at that sweet story of the scared little boy and we pretend that we as grown-ups don't want the same thing that that little boy wanted. But we do. We want to know the reality in our lives of the Lord Jesus Christ. John, the apostle, writes in his gospel to encourage people like you and me, people who will never be able to write as he wrote and we read this morning, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked at, which our hands have touched, this we proclaim to you. People who will never experience Jesus with quote-unquote skin on. Not in this world anyway. How will we recognize the reality of Jesus even when we don't see him? Michael Card was a well-known and well-respected. He's not dead, he's still alive, but I think he was at his peak in the, in the 80s and 90s. He's probably most famous for the song he wrote called El Shaddai. Raise your hand if you know El Shaddai. <laughs> oh, great, y'all still know it, wonderful. This is another song he wrote, it's the chorus of a song. To hear with my heart, to see with my soul, to be guided by a hand I cannot hold, to trust in a way that I cannot see, That's what faith must be. John wants our lives to be blessed. He wants our lives to be empowered through the ever-present reality of our ever-present Savior. And I hope that will be our blessing and our power this morning as we come once again to John chapter 21. If you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to open there. Fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John. When you found John, turn to chapter 21. And when you found chapter 21, I'm going to ask you to stand as we hear read together the word of the living God. And this is the word of the Lord. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, The sons of Zebedee, the two other disciples, were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore. But the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. 
He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the, full, the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you and to your word this morning, hoping and praying that through your word you would touch our minds and our hearts, that through your word, Lord, you would transform us, that through your word, Lord, we would know the reality of your presence with us right now in this time, in this place, a reality that's often hard to grasp, Lord, because you don't have skin on, but nonetheless, you are real and you are here Convince us of that truth as we come to your word now. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, we looked at this same chapter in John. And when we did, we saw the power of the ever-present Christ to preserve. These disciples that we've just read the list, they... They didn't scatter, they didn't disperse after Jesus was arrested and crucified. Neither did these disciples in shame and guilt for their abandonment of Jesus, for denying him. Neither did they hide in fear and embarrassment from one another. Against all expectations and against all the wisdom of the day, here are these disciples gathered on the beach. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19 tells us, For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. Humbling, isn't it? We who are so wise. The word of the Lord tells us that he acts beyond our expectations, that he does immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Humbling, isn't it, for We who have it all figured out. But here against all expectations, against all human logic, these disciples are together because Jesus has the power to preserve, to bring together, to unite very different people with very different personalities, very different perspectives, very different gifts. He brings them together and he keeps them together because he is the powerful resurrected Savior. 
We also noted last week that Jesus preserves this band of men because he has a purpose for them. From this group of men, and they're very fast approaching, spirit-filled preaching and teaching and mission trips and ministry to God's people, from that will spring the church. The church, the first one. The church has been growing, unstoppable, for 2,000 years. The church that this preserved group of men established, that church, she is our mother. We came from her. And so it's a good time for us to stop this morning and to ask ourselves, what will happen to the church if you and I don't take our places as preserved people for the same purpose? Where will our church children be? Where will our church grandchildren be? See, you and I, like the disciples, have to commit ourselves to spirit-filled teaching and preaching and missions trips and service to God's people so that our church, this church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church, will have children. And those children will have children. So that by absolute necessity, we must plant more and more churches throughout the city because so many people are coming to faith because of our gospel presence here in the center of Charleston. Why is that too much to expect from one who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine? And even if the wise of the day tell us that we are now post-Christian, even though they tell us that religion in general and Christianity in particular will soon be looked at as an embarrassing mistake from the past, we know that the wisdom of this world is folly to the Lord. So as we continue this morning in the same passage, We realize that these gospel goals and this gospel purpose for which we long, we can accomplish things, these much better when you and I are always aware of the very real presence of Jesus with us. And our confidence in the presence of Christ with us will only grow when we think for just a moment about the Apostle John and this gospel that he has written to us. John doesn't leave us in doubt as to why he wrote this gospel. If you still have your Bible open, look up one verse. It's the last verse in chapter 20, one verse above what we read this morning. John writes there that he has written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now the best attested Greek manuscript reads this way, that you may continue to believe. And so this is why John writes, so that people may continue to believe no matter what. But look, look how things are changing. Continue to believe. Oh, but look what's happening in the world. Continue to believe. Oh, 
Yeah, but look at look what they've discovered. Continue to believe. Why? John tells us because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That's why we believe. Because Jesus, no matter what they say, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Could I please get an amen for that? Thank you. Who are John's readers? The ones that would receive this gospel. Well, there are people whose world was very different from the world that existed, even from the one that Jesus knew when he was alive and when John was his young disciple. John very likely wrote his gospel in the year 80 AD. He was probably about 75 years old at the time. It's possible he wrote it as late as like 95 AD when he was a 90-year-old man. So at least 50 years have passed since Jesus was crucified and resurrected. There's been upheaval in the Roman Empire. Jerusalem, that ancient city, the Romans have completely destroyed it, put it to the torch, destroyed it. Over one million Jews died in their revolt against the Roman Empire. The temple was gone, completely destroyed. It's possible that that's why the Apostle John had to move to Ephesus, where he eventually died as an old man, because his world no longer existed. John can't go back. He can't go back on a nostalgic trip and and go to the temple and remember, oh, here's where Jesus stood and proclaimed, I'm the light of the world. He can't go back to the place where Jesus proclaimed, let everyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. That place is gone. That world is gone. But John must continue in faith. Others must continue in faith. New challenges now face the church. There are heretics afoot. A man named Serenthus was teaching bad things about Jesus. He was telling people Jesus had a human mother and a human father. He was telling them that when Jesus was baptized, Christ, in the form of a dove, hovered over Jesus for those three years. And just before Jesus was arrested and crucified, the dove, Christ, departed so that it wasn't Christ that died on the cross or was resurrected. He taught that that, that Christ never took on human flesh. So Irenaeus who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, who wrote this gospel, tells the story of John. Here's old John living in Ephesus, and he needs a bath. So he goes to the bathhouse. And he discovers that Serenthus, that heretic, was also inside. And so John, without taking a bath, rushes out exclaiming, Let us flee! lest even the bathhouse fall down because Serenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. True story. John wrote his gospel for a world that was changing. A world from which Jesus and all of his close friends, his fellow apostles, they have all departed. John is left alone, the last and the longest living apostle. But John must continue in faith. Others must continue in faith as well. And so 
the church father Clement of Alexandria. He lived in the second half of the second century. He wrote, Last of all, John, perceiving that the external facts had been made plain in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, urged by his friends and inspired by the Spirit, composed a spiritual gospel. A gospel to touch our hearts. Not a made-up story. There are too many details in this passage to make it untrue. 153 fish, 100 yards away from shore. It's a true story, but it's a spiritual story. One more compelling reason that John 21 is so valuable and inspirational for us. It's very likely that John didn't write this chapter. The verse we just read, the last one in chapter 20, that's the ending of the gospel. John giving his purpose, why he wrote it. But it's possible that John dictated chapter 21 after he finished his gospel. And someone else transcribed it. Perhaps the elders in the church in Ephesus pled with John, please, John, please, please include that story of the time that Jesus fed you and the other disciples on the beach. It's also possible that one of the elders in the church in Ephesus, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote the story down that John had told so many times. The point is that John chapter 21 and this story is here on purpose. This is a story that had to be told because it's a story that has power. I promise we're going to get to this passage. I promise. Just one more thing. The same John who wrote this gospel also wrote what we call the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 12, John writes this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, Satan, has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They have conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. We know what the blood of the Lamb is. We know there's power in the blood. Man, we used to sing that song with gusto. In my little country church, there is power, power, wonder work. You know that song, don't you? Wonder work and power, except we said power. Because that was West Virginia. There's power in the blood, and there is power in the blood. It's true. Through his shed blood, Jesus has redeemed his people from sin. He set us free from the accusations of the enemy, and that's good news. Through Christ, we're more than conquerors. But right alongside the power of the blood, what does John list here? The word of their testimony. That's how they won. That's how they defeated their enemy, by the power of the blood and the word of their testimony. And what is their testimony? It's their story. The story of how the gospel broke through in their life. How the very present, very real Christ went to work in them. And he took out that heart of stone that was so hardened against God, hardened in unbelief, hardened in skepticism, related all that, hardened in sin. No, I love my sin. I enjoy my sin. And I intend to continue in my sin. No, the very real Jesus went to work and he took out that heart of stone. Boom. And what did he do? He put in a heart of flesh, soft toward the things of God.
Their story, their testimony is the story of how God changed all that through the power of the gospel. And so once again, I ask you, what is your story? And I tell you this, your story is powerful. People need to hear it. In an uncertain world in which we live where things change so quickly, your story of the ever-present Christ with you is powerful and it will bring hope to people in your life. And it will bring comfort to them. And it will alleviate fear and worry because it's the story of the very present Jesus who is with you right now. So please do this. Don't withhold your story. Tell it. John did not withhold his story. It's a story too powerful not to tell. And so at long last, we arrive at the story in John chapter 21. And as we come to this story, let's see how John recognizes the very real presence of Jesus. You heard the story. John is in the boat with the other disciples. It's the misty hours of early morning. They fished all night long without success. They've caught nothing. Jesus is on the beach, only they don't recognize that it's Jesus. And so this unknown man calls out to them, Friends, have you caught any fish? No, they answer. Throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. It was in that moment that John said to Peter, It is the Lord. It's not the face of Jesus that John recognizes. When he comes to this realization, it's the character of the Lord that John recognizes. His abundant provision for his disciples. This is who they knew Jesus to be. John and Peter and James, they were on another beach three years before. Shortly after they had met Jesus, they were there washing their nets. They had caught nothing all night, though they had fished all night. Jesus got into the boat with them and he said to Peter, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Peter said, Master, we've worked hard all night long and we haven't caught anything, but if you say so, okay. I'll let down the nets. And when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that the nets began to break. And they had to signal to their partners on the shore, come, help us, we have so many fish. And so another boat came. And the two boats together could hardly contain the fish. And both boats began to sink because of the weight of the fish in them. And Simon Peter fell to his knees and said to Jesus, Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. But Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. And at that, po- and at that moment, these men left their boats, left their nets, and they began to follow Jesus. And so here at the end is what they discovered at the beginning. They recognized Jesus by his character. It's the Lord, John proclaims, because he knew this is how the Lord acts. This is who Jesus is. 
This is how he has acted on our behalf in the past. This is how the Lord has encouraged our hearts in the past and confirmed who he is, the powerful son of God. It is the Lord. Now look in verse 12. When Jesus invites them to eat breakfast, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Now, if they had recognized Jesus physically, they would not have needed any nerve to ask him, who are you? Because they would have said, oh, it's you, Jesus. But they didn't recognize him. Their eyes could not confirm the truth that it was Jesus. And yet John tells us in verse 12 that they knew it was the Lord. How did they know? Once again, it's the character of the Lord. Here Jesus is, again, serving them, serving them. Just as he had done at the Last Supper, when he wrapped the towel around his waist and he went and washed their feet. Just as he did at the Last Supper, when he broke bread and he gave it to them to eat and poured wine and gave it to them to drink. It's the Lord serving them. So yes, it's easy to declare, it is the Lord, when you know the character of the Lord. And that's our comfort this morning, your comfort and my comfort. We who will never see the face of Jesus until we see it in glory. We are able to say, along with John, it is the Lord, not because of what we see, but because of what we hear. The words of truth that Jesus speaks to us and the gracious acts that he performs. What puts John and others in the position to recognize it is the Lord. It's faith in the word of Jesus. He sent a message to the disciples on the morning that they discovered he had risen from the tomb. He said, go, go tell the disciples he has risen from the dead. He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. And so... Here they are in Galilee. Why? Because Jesus said to go. Because Jesus said, expect to see me there. And so they go. Faith in the Lord is what brought them to this beach or shore for you northerners. That was the comic relief. Thank you, Debbie. That's what you and I have left to us. It's the word of the one who is the living word of God. Through the word, you and I recognize the Lord and can say it is the Lord. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Everything about Jesus Paul wants to know it. I want 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 to know Christ. And then he'll be able to recognize the presence of the Lord around him. The power of the Lord with him, even if he doesn't know by seeing that it is the Lord. I've learned a lot about art from my wife. Watching her paint these beautiful paintings from a blank canvas to to what comes out at the end. I've learned about art by going to galleries with her and sitting at the house and looking at art books with her. 
You know, artists are, are known by their style. You can identify an artist by their brushstroke or by the way they use color or by the way you, they mix color. But you have to study their work to be able to know it, to recognize their work. Oh, this is a Rembrandt. Oh, this is a Sarah Dowling, whatever. I don't think we'll be able to embrace or have the comfort of the reality of the presence of the Lord with us when we don't recognize his power. When we don't know who he is because we don't study his word. When we don't know his character because we don't know him through his word. When we're unfamiliar with what is on his heart and the way he works, we must have eyes to look for his character and to see his hand at work around us in all places, all the time. Think of what the disciples were doing when Jesus appears to them. They were in the midst of their routine work. Work they had done for years before they ever met Jesus. He appears to them in the midst of it. And in that moment, John declares, it is the Lord. Jesus didn't come to them when they were in the synagogue, though he could have. Jesus didn't come to them while they were in prayer, though he could have. He didn't come to them while they were in the middle of ministry. They weren't. He came to them while they were at work, tired, wet, hungry. They were expecting him. They just didn't know when they would see him. We need to live our lives with this sense of expectancy. The routine parts of our lives always expecting to see the Lord. We must be people who expect to be able to say, It is the Lord! It is the Lord! At any time, on any day, this is nothing less than having a Christian world view, looking in the world for the work of Christ and his resurrection power. In this story, John tells us that Jesus withholds from the disciples the fish during the night. He holds them back, but at his appointed time, he says the word and the fish flood the net of the fishermen and they know it is the Lord. The nets that should have broken under the weight of the fish, did not break. And so the disciples know it is the Lord. John tells us this story so that you and I will be able to say it is the Lord. Though they did not recognize him with their eyes, they knew his character. Yes, this is the Lord. As you and I move through this world, We see Jesus, even when we don't quote-unquote see Jesus. Again, it's what it means to have a Christian worldview. Jesus is not segmented or separated from the rest of life. He's not limited to time and space. There is no time that is not his time. No time when he is not present. In the morning... When I rise, give me Jesus. At midday, at night, give me Jesus. When I am alone, give me Jesus. When so much is going on in my life that I can't get alone, give me Jesus. When I come to die, give me Jesus. This is our prayer. 
and all of life, looking for, seeing, and experiencing the presence of the Lord. That is our privilege. That is your privilege and my privilege as believers in Christ. And with this perspective, when we hear with our heart, when we see with our souls, when we're guided by a hand we cannot hold, when we trust in a way that we cannot see, then you and I will continue in faith in an uncertain, ever-changing world. And we will accomplish, and know we'll accomplish, this purpose for which God has called us together the purpose for which God is preserving us, holding us together even in this moment. And that's to change the world through the power of the gospel and an ever-present Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, for those here this morning who love you, For those here this morning who give so much of their time and lives studying your word, so the long with Paul or with the desire of Paul, they they, they say, I want to know Christ. Lord Jesus, bless them, bless me, bless us when that is our goal, to know you more and more. Though we don't see you, Lord, we know you. We know your character your work of love and mercy and compassion and grace. So bless every heart here, Lord, who has that as a a goal for their lives. Father, for others who don't necessarily have that as a goal, Lord, for others here who segment you, believing that you belong in this place at this time, Sunday morning at 1030, and maybe in the middle of the week at community group, but the rest of life is for them, Lord, I pray that they would all be convinced of your very real presence, your very real power with them in all places at all times so that they would call on your power. Lord, we want to accomplish great things, not for ourselves or for our glory but for you and your glory. Father, we thank you that you've blessed us, that we're on the way to filling this place up. Finish the work, Lord. Fill it up so that we're required, Lord, to plant another church. We pray that you would fill that up as well. And Lord, when that one's full, we pray that you would require us to plant another church and another and another. Not through Christians who are shuffling the deck, hopping from one place to another, but because we are actively sharing the good news of the gospel. Because, Lord, we're going to people who don't experience justice in this world, becoming their advocates, speaking for them, telling them the truth of the gospel, that their hope for real justice is only with you. Lord, as we take that message out and lives are changed, Father, from those people, 
May one church after the other after the other spring forth for your glory and for the propagation of your gospel throughout the city and the world. We know that you'll accomplish this in us and through us, Lord, as we experience your very real presence. And so I pray that the prayer of our hearts would be, Lord, give me Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.